Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. And so we're picking up at, at chapter 2, and this is where this begins sort of a transition period. We get a few chapters where the household of Saul and the household of David are at war with one another. And certain new uh, men come into the picture that we'll see um, have a significant role in the, uh, in the drama coming up. But let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Second Samuel chapter 2. <coughs> Second Samuel chapter 2, this is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahnoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the city, cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore... Let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah. And the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by count, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve for the ser- of the servants of David. Each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helketh Hazurim, which is, which is in Gibeon. That day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was, a was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Azahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Azahel? And he said, It is I. 
So Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his spoil. But Azahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Azahel, Turn aside from following him. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is in front of Gaia, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band. And they stood on the top of a certain hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight any more. Abner and his men then went through the Arabah all that night, so they crossed the Jordan, walked all morning, and came to Mahanaim. And Joab returned from following Abner when he had gathered all the people together. Nineteen of David's servants beside Azahel were missing. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men so that 360 men died. And they took up Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men went all night until the dawn, the day dawned at Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. <clears throat> All right, so Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. David is king. And yet he's coming out of his wilderness wandering out in the, the Philistines. And he's coming out of exile. And you remember previously in the previous chapter that David and all of Israel had lamented both the, the, the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan. David lamented, and, um, and yet, even though the mighty have fallen, their influence lives on. So the, the influence of King Saul lives on through his men, particularly through Abner, who was his commander. And so the first thing, what is the first thing that David does when he is, coming, when he is considering coming back into the land of Judah? He inquires of the Lord. Now, it's significant because one of the things we remember about Saul is that God had stopped talking to Saul, and yet here is David coming back from exile. The first thing he does is consult with the Lord and ask simple questions, and boom, simple answers, right? God communicates with King David um, very, um, very easily, but he inquires of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And, he's, and God says, go up. And God tells him to go to the specific place, to Hebron, right? And Hebron was a large city. It was, do you, do you remember anything about Hebron? Anything significant about Hebron? No. Nothing. Um, I don't know about that. You might be right. Um, 
I'm going back further than that. Um, <coughs> Hebron, Hebron was very close to the place where Abraham and his family were buried. So this is the one, one part of the land that Abram, Abraham ever had, was Hebron. The one, the one little thing was that burial plot that he had. Otherwise, Abraham had no, no inheritance in the land of Israel. And so this is back to that spot, back to where Abraham and Leah and who, whoever else was buried there. Um, uh, this is also the place where the spies went in and saw giants. The spies go in and see giants and come back and give the reports, right? And it's also a city of refuge, right? And what's a city of refuge? A city of refuge was where if you had committed manslaughter, you could, you could flee to that city and be protected until the high priest died of that city. So it was, a, it was part of the ethical um, judicial system of, of Israel, and so that's Hebron. This is significant. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot connected to history. And so I don't think it's <clears throat> random that David would choose, or that God would choose Hebron for, for King David. Now this isn't Jerusalem, right? This is Hebron. And this is where, where David reigns for about seven years, and then it's on to Jerusalem after that. So he faces uh, issues as a king from the start, particularly... Um, in relation to the land, but um, notice what it says that he is anointed. What is David anointed? <coughs> Verse 4. The man of Judah came there and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. So he's a tribal king at this point, right? He has, not, he has been anointed by Samuel to become the king, right? And that was sort of a, that, that, that wasn't the consummation of that. That was just sort of marking him out because there was already a king, Saul. Now he's become the, the king of a tribe and um, a few years down the road, then he becomes king of all of Israel, Right, and so there, there's this um, there's this progression here of him being built up as a leader. Um, you know, given given his anointing by Samuel, we would expect this huge fanfare for David coming back into the land and all the all the tribes consolidating around him. But no, that's not what happens. There's civil war right off the bat because of Saul's lasting influence in Israel. Right, so. Verse 4, the men of Judah came, anointed King David, and it's not until chapter 5, chapter 5, where he's anointed king over all Israel. Now there's this, there's Jabesh Gilead here. We remember that Saul was from Jabesh Gilead, and those men uh, particularly loved him. What did they do? What did the men of Jabesh Gilead do for Saul? You remember? Or did it say here? Yeah, they rescued his body, which was being, which was being, uh, I mean, he was shamefully hung upon the wall of a city. 
And Jabesh Gilead risks themselves to go and recover his body and at least show him that honor, right? Even though he was not an honorable man at that point, they still show honor to the king. And here David is his first move. I mean, you would think as a new leader that he would would face a dilemma here. He knows that Jabesh Gilead is, is loyal to Saul. Yet yeah, he's becoming king, so he's got a choice to make. He could, he could um, do nothing, right, and just wait. He could um, watch and see what Jabesh Gilead is going to do to see if they're, um, to see if they're, you know, loyal or not. Or he could, he could attack and do away with them. Instead, he um, is there a problem, Ben? Is it ringing or something? I can't hear it. Um, <clears throat> and so, the rather than do any of those things, he uh, blesses them. Right? He comes along, and, and maybe this is part politics and part you know good leadership and part faith. But he he says, "May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord." Uh, and have buried him, right? And so, um, <clears throat> then he, he says, look, now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I will show you this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and also the house of Judah. In other words, he's saying, now spend your strength for me. Spend your strength for me. Come and... Um, and be on my side, which is a wise way to approach those who might have become his enemies. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Abner. Abner is the commander of Saul's army. And what does the commander of Saul's army do? He takes a scoundrel and makes him the king of Israel. This is Abner trying to flex his muscles. This is Abner acting as the de facto leader of Israel. And he puts a scoundrel in place. And the reason we know he's a scoundrel is because Ishbosheth means man of shame. They anoint the man of shame to be their king, right? And um, elsewhere, he's, he's referred to as Eshbaal, which means the fire of Baal. And Baal was, a, of course, a a foreign god, and it seems that, uh, that he may have been an idolater, but so, certainly a shameful man, but here's Abner, the son, the, <coughs> the commander of Saul's army, anointing him, and this is Saul's only son, right? This is Saul's only remaining son, and he is therefore made king over all Israel, it says. And yet the house of Judah follows David. Judah follows David. Other tribes follow Ishbosheth. David's in Hebron for seven and a half years. And all of this by Abner, by Ishbosheth, is rebellion against God. They would have known of Samuel's prophetic work, they would have known about the anointing of David for this moment. And instead, the moment Saul's dead, one of the sons of Saul is put in his place instead of David. Now, along comes Joab, another 
another uh, commander of the armies. Joab is the commander of David's armies. Abner is the commander of Saul's armies. And these two men now are on opposite sides. And they come to Gibeon. And it seems, from what I read, given geography, we can, we can determine that Abner is, the be, is, Abner is being the aggressor here. Abner is going into Judah, Judah's territory and sort of making an attack on Judah. And so Joab and David's men are, are going to hold them off and hold them back. But they meet around a pool in Gibeon. One's, one army on one side, one on the other. And <clears throat> Abner says, let's hold a contest. Let's hold a contest. This is like gladiatorial games, right? This is like that sort of contest. And perhaps they didn't mean for it to get so bloody so quickly, but clearly this was uh, superintended by God. All 12 men on each side die simultaneously. Grabbed by the head and the sword in the side, you know, just boom. And so the other guy's grabbing the head and putting the sword in his side. And so they all fall at once. Now, would you take that as a message from the Lord? I mean, that is, that's a miracle. That is, that's as extraordinary as fire falling from the sky. When you see 12 men simultaneously dropping to the ground dead, you know that's the judgment of God. But what, was, what, what is the message that possibly could have come out of that? What message do you think God was trying to send to these men, Abner and Joab? Um, I think, yeah, you can, you can get that stop fighting part, but, but go, go a little bit more, go a little deeper. It's yes, it's definitely that it's definitely that the bloodshed will continue, but I think it's also not that the bloodshed will continue, but there's not going to be any winner. There's no, no one's going to win here. This was like even death, right? You guys are going to kill one another. There's going to be no winner. There's not, there's just going to be, um, there's going to be losers on every side. And so, um, God is not taking sides, in other words, right now, right? I mean, it seems like God is saying, I'm not taking sides as, as if both of these fall at once. Now, that, that uh, field was then named the Field of Sword Edges, which uh, is a good name. The battle continues, and uh, David's men and Joab take the day, right? <clears throat> they only lose 19, whereas the, the men of Abner lose 360, right? But the, the bloodshed continues. Who are the, who's Zeruiah? Who is Zeruiah? One of those names you should have in your back pocket. Zeruiah is David's sister. That means the sons of Zeruiah are David's nephews. Right? So Joab, um, uh, Azahel, and... uh, Why am I forgetting this? Abishag are all his nephews. Right? So these three men are David's nephews. 
and Zeruiah was his sister, Joab, Abishai, Abishai and Azahel. So Azahel <clears throat> can run, right? He can run, he pursues Abner, and all throughout that pursuit, what does Abner keep doing? Is it taunting? I don't know if it's taunting. It's, it's not taunting. He's like, he's afraid. And he's like, don't you think you could do something else? Don't you think you could take those guys over there? Don't you think you could? He's really trying to get them to stop. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get them to stop, but he would not stop. He would not turn aside from the pursuit, even after, after um, Abner pleads, and then it says that Abner <clears throat> strikes him, right? It says in 23, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out his back. And, and a lot of the commentators take that as an indication that, that Abner's still running away from Azahel. And Azahel, and, and the, the butt end of spears would have, would have been sharpened, Right? Um, both ends, that Azahel was so swift in overtaking him that, that he impaled himself on Abner's butt end of his sword. And I think, I think that's the only reason it would be mentioned here. Otherwise, otherwise, when they engaged, he would have turned and he would have struck him with his, his, his spear or his sword um, from the front side. And so it seems that the... Um, it seems that this is protecting the reputation of Abner a little bit here. That this wasn't just, this was self-defense. This was not just murder here. And it seems to be making that point. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, I, I find it interesting then in 23 that all who came, about, came to that place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. Why do you think it says that? All who came to that spot where Azahel died stood still. Any thoughts on that? You ever been to Gettysburg? You ever been to Antietam? You ever been to a uh, Civil War or a Revolutionary War battlefield? Do you want to be loud? Do you want to be annoying and loud and obnoxious and dance? No, you want to be quiet and you want to sit still. Because you know that a lot of blood had been shed on that, that ground, right? And I think that's why it says it here. When there's a significant death, that where it occurs and where the ground draws that blood in, it has a tendency to, um, to sober us up, to quiet our, our hearts. Yeah, that's, that was the other thing I was going to mention is I think this also has to do something with the ferocious reputation of Joab, right? Uh-oh, the little brother died. Joab is not exactly a pleasant man. <clears throat> Joab is a, is a very aggressive and uh, we will come to find out wicked man. 
right? And so, yeah, that, there's that, <clears throat> they stood still, um, and then Joab and Abishai pursue Abner. Abner rejoins the men of ben- Benjamin, and, and, and then Abner pleads. He, he says, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter to the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? You know, this is the guy who had just killed Azahel. And they, Joab, it agrees, both sides return home, but Joab does not forget. Joab will not forget what has happened here. And then we get the count, 20, Dave, 20 to 360. And then verse 1 of chapter 3, which we didn't read, says this, Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. So there's a shifting of power here from here out. Now what applications can we make from a passage like this? Here are the applications that I came up with, but I always like it if you share the others that occur to you as we go through it. First, David seeks the Lord. It's the first thing he does when, when he's on the verge of becoming the king of a tribe and then the king of Israel is he seeks the Lord. Do you bathe new things in your life in prayer? A new child, a new job, a new house, a new um, calling, whatever it might be. Do you, do you pursue the Lord, particularly at those points, asking Him to superintend those things. Um, when I forget to, I have a tendency to, that's when my anxiety starts creeping in, right? When I, when I start worrying about things rather than laying them before the Lord to pray. What about the start of a new day? Is there enough in a day to pray in the morning that God would give you the strength and, and help that you need? Every day is like that. I know some people who pray at the top of every hour. And every hour of their life is started by a prayer. Whether a 30-second prayer or a two-minute prayer or a half-hour prayer, every hour is started that way. I find that really challenging. And I think it would be very helpful to me to be that constant in my prayers. Um, But certainly each day, each day, the first thing off of our lips when we wake up and get the sleep out of our eyes should be, thank you, Lord. Thank you for rest. Thank you for a lack of rest. Thank you that I awoke. Thank you for something. So uh, right at the outset, be be in prayer and, and help others with that. You, you're often with people when they're starting something significant. Say, say to them, you know, we should stop and we should pray. Let's pray before you try out for the basketball team. You know, whatever. I mean, pray with your kids like that. Let's pray before you go um, to your first at-bat with the bases loaded. Tough. I should have prayed, right? <coughs> Second. The Lord's, um, <clears throat> the Lord's anointed finally rules on earth. The Lord's anointed. Saul was not the Lord's anointed. He was the Lord's anointed, but he wasn't the Lord's anointed, right? Like David. Um, Samuel and the people chose Saul 
but God shows David. And now David is ruling over, there, there is an anointed one of the Lord, a king, finally on the earth. That's more of a, an observation of the blessings of God in him continually coming back to his people and pouring blessings out upon them. He's given them a king, and he's given them not just a king, but David, who is a man after God's own heart, who is a man who truly fears and loves the Lord, and will lead, not without sin, obviously, but will lead in the fear of the Lord. Um, Third, here's another application, and this is from Dale Ralph Davis. Do not allow the unpromising form of the kingdom, the unpromising form of the kingdom, to blind you to the real presence of the kingdom. It is no trifle when Yahweh's chosen king begins to reign. By the Spirit's chemistry, this truth is what keeps many of God's servants on their feet. Scores of Jesus' disciples found most of their labor is done in a Hebron stage in which they see little of the power and glory, but as long as they know He already reigns, they are content. In other words, Dale Ralph Davis is saying, um, David's in Hebron. This is little. He's the king of one tribe. He's not the king of all Israel. But often, that's what our ministry is. For seven years, we may be laboring in a Hebron situation, he's saying. And that's okay. That's good. Um, Do not despise the day of little things, right? God likes little things, right? Gideon's army. Gideon's army was too big, and God said, I'd like it to be smaller. And then I'll give you victory when it's but 300, right? And so God, God is not limited by many or few. God is not limited and God is reigning on earth through David in Hebron. Okay? There's an application. How, uh, any applications that you are thinking of tonight that come to mind? I have a few others, but I'll save them from this passage. It's on the tip of your tongue, Michael. I can see it. I always think of the, of the Beza biography of Calvin where Calvin said, Calvin's almost dead and he's in his deathbed and all the pastors are around him and the wind's been blowing like crazy and he's like, you know, something significant just happened. These winds indicate it. And you're like, Calvin, man, you are not the uh, continuing revelation sort of guy. And, um, but he wasn't specific about it. He just said, look, these winds indicate something. And I'm reading God's providence. And sure enough, there had been like a, a big victory by the reformed forces in France at, at some point. 
at that during that evening. And so, yeah, I, I think I think we have this. You have to be careful about this because I know people who will overread Providence. Right, some paper will drop off their desk and they'll consider that a sign from God, and you know it. It's a coupon for cleaning their clothes, and they'll be like, God told me to clean my clothes. I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe he did. He certainly caused that coupon to fall off there, and he certainly caused you to go clean your clothes. And so in, in the grand scheme of things, it was in the decrees of God, but, but did he tell you that through that? I don't know. But in significant, I think... Um, I think we have to, we'd be foolish not to read the providence of God in the trade towers being destroyed in New York City. Right? What kind of pagan mindset would we have to have not to see a warning from God in that? Right? That's the sort of reading of providence that I'm talking about. Can we be specific about it? No. Can we be warned by it? Yeah, we can be. And so. <clears throat> Um, perhaps these men should have stopped and paused to think on the miracle of the t- 24 dying simultaneously. Here's another thing. Political savvy is right at times. David with Jabesh Gilead. He's gracious. Um, he's gracious, not merely savvy, but he's also savvy. Right? He's as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove as he deals with these men who could have risen up against him and who were definitely committed to the house of Saul. So he does um, his kingly duty in subduing his enemies to himself. Right? That's... <clears throat> and yeah, I mean, we have the example of David and his amazing respect for the Lord's anointed in Saul. Absolutely. And so that's just continuing here. Um, <clears throat> another application. Only the house of Judah was following David, it says. Only the house of Judah was following David. Knox in 1566 said this. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and put an end at thy good pleasure to this my miserable life. For justice and truth are not to be found among the children of men. That's what Knox said. Um, You know, he had a sense that there were so few that were following truth, right? There were so few that that, that justice was to be found nowhere. And and Knox is having his, you know, his Elijah moment uh, moment where he's just like, I want to die. Um, truth is not to be found, Lord, take me out of this miserable life. And here's King David who's been fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting against Saul and his life's been protected and his brothers have disrespected him early on and, and he's been out and living among the Philistines and now he comes back and it's warfare, right? You, you would think that David might have had that mindset of, Lord, just kill me. Just take me out of this life, this miserable life. I know you've called me for this, but no one, no one is capable of doing this. But David doesn't do that. He follows God even in the day of small things. And, and David probably has it in his mind 
that what we should have in our mind at those same points is that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That when it's planted, it grows into the biggest tree in the garden, right? And the, and the birds come and nest in it, right? That's what the kingdom of God is. And so even now, if it feels like it's a seed, the promise of God is that it will sprout and the whole earth will be covered with the glory of the Lord. And so that's what, that's what, um, that's what kills that mindset that Knox had, Right? And it would have been sin for him to have that mindset. Elijah was rebuked for it. Knox should have been rebuked for it. Um, <clears throat> Jonah was rebuked for it. And so Knox should have said, no, no, it may be just a tiny seed now, but God will make it grow. And it will grow and grow and grow until our Lord returns and everything is made peaceful and the eternal Sabbath begins. Any, anything else, or should that be the last word? Any other thoughts? All right, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for, for this passage. Lord, we thank you for the truth that it teaches us. We thank you that it is an encouragement to us. We thank you that for the way that you prospered King David, that you protected him, that you raised him up to lead your people, Lord, and to reign on your throne. We thank you, Almighty God, that Jesus has taken that throne, has seated himself on the throne of David there to eternally reign over us, subduing our enemies, Father, and uh, interceding for us. And and, uh, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we're united to him and that we will reign with him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.